0: your Bibles, do turn to Revelation 2. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 uh, to 7. And as we start this morning, I want to start by asking you, what does a church look like that is in danger of closing down? What does a church look like that is in danger of closing down? What characteristics would it have? And maybe you, like me, would come up with things like they've stopped preaching the truth Gospels no longer being preached there. They've started focusing more on, on social stuff maybe than sharing the gospel with the community around them. They've stopped having a prayer meeting perhaps. Or maybe there's just five or six old people there every single Sunday. I'm sure the list would go on. The letter to the church uh, in Ephesus answers that question of what such a church can look like. And the answer that we find there is very different to maybe what we would expect. Um, Ephesus was a city on the west coast of what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, Several trade routes went through there. It was a wealthy, cosmopolitan place, just like Cardiff. Uh, But it was a wealthy, cosmopolitan place. But it was also a very pagan society. It was home to the largest pagan temple in the ancient world, uh, the pagan temple of Artemis or Diana, depending on whether you're using Greek or not. Uh, It was, though, a city with a church. And if you want some homework for later, you can read Acts 19 and you can see how the church in Ephesus started. Now, this church had been sent a letter. And it wasn't just a letter from anybody. They had had a letter from the risen and exalted Lord Jesus that we read about earlier. And here, the description that is given to him uh, at the beginning of this letter in chapter 2, taken from chapter 1, verse 12, is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hands and who walks amongst uh, the seven golden lampstands. And verse 20 of chapter 1, thankfully, explains to us what that means. It tells us that the stars are the the seven uh, uh, messengers, or they could be elders of the churches. We're not quite sure what that means. But that the lampstands, they signify there's one for each uh, of the seven churches. So the picture that we have here is that Jesus is holding the messengers in his right hand. He is holding them firmly. They cannot be snatched away. And we can also see that he walks amongst the lampstand, a picture that Jesus walks in the middle of his church. He is up close and personal. And from that place of walking amongst the churches, Jesus starts, doesn't he, in verse 2 with very two simple words I know. I know. Jesus knows everything. He knows everything about the church. When well, you everything about the church in Ephesus, he knows everything about Bethel. He knows every heart. He knows every thought. He knows every conversation. And as we consider what Jesus knows about the church in Ephesus, I want us this morning to think about what that says to your situation. Because even though it is not written directly to us, it is written for us. I want to see three things very briefly this morning. Three things okay. Firstly Jesus reminds us of the importance of standing firm. Jesus remembers the importance of standing firm. I'm sure some of you can remember what parents evening was like when you were a child right. If you can remember that it was It was terrifying, wasn't it?' It's probably actually more t- terrifying for parents having to go along and find out what's about to be said about their children, but it was terrifying wasn't it? you'd be there you'd be wondering what was your teacher going to tell your parents about you after all, they knew what you were really like in school not the not the sort of sanitized clean version that you gave mum and dad every single day when you got through the door. Imagine how you'd feel knowing that Jesus was writing your report because as we said, he knows everything. I'm not sure about you, but I'd be very nervous at that prospect. And this is what Jesus says about them in verses 2 and 3. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary." Jesus is saying a big well done for standing firm. And he highlights three things that he knows that they stood, how they stood firm. He says there, doesn't he, that he knows their good works. This church in Ephesus was a church that did a lot of good. And Jesus say, is saying that they excelled in what they did. You can imagine they had a good amount of activities. They would have had two preaching services on a Sunday. They would have had a couple of prayer meetings every single week. They would have, they would have had things going on for the y- local youth. Maybe they were looking to the needs of the local community, providing food parcels and things like that. They were fulfilling, weren't they, what Paul had emphasized to them in Ephesians 2, when he wrote to them saying, We are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But he also highlights that they loved sound doctrine. This church was well grounded in the word. We know from Acts 20. That Paul stayed there for three years. We know that Timothy had been sent there. It's also likely that the Apostle John was there in his latter years. It's no wonder they knew the importance of sound doctrine. And it was really really important then because they didn't have Bible colleges. They didn't have hundreds and hundreds of years sermons and writings to to feed on. And I know this will be unbelievable to some of you. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have Google. They couldn't go and find these things, could they? So what happened was, is that churches could quite easily fall into error by a preacher coming and telling them something that wasn't true. But here this church, Ephesus, wasn't like that. They did not stand for heresy in their pulpit. They didn't stand for immorality in people's lives. We see, even in verse 6, we see this stance towards their sound doctrine, as we see their attitudes towards a group of people called the Nicolaitans. These were people who were probably practicing immorality and idolatry under the banner of spiritual liberty. But here the church in Ephesus says, no, that's not happening. This church was sound. But the third, third thing that Jesus highlights in, in verses in verses 2 and 3 is that he knows their perseverance life was not easy for these followers of Christ they faced all sorts of challenges and hardships the gospel had caused havoc in Ephesus right so if you're going to read in ephesians 19 carry on uh, acts 19 sorry carry on reading it causes havoc the gospel there so many people were converted the idol makers lost their living because nobody wanted to buy the idols anymore so they caused a riot And the Christians found themselves slandered boycotted and abused yet they didn't give up. They were confronted by hardship but they stood firm they persevered and Jesus commends them for standing firm. It's quite a quite a quite a start in the report card isn't it for for Ephesus. If they were around today we'd be thinking they were a great church and uh, maybe you were comparing Bethel to them. And how you guys measure up. How many members you have in different things. And you love sound doctrine here. You have done for decades. You're serious about the Bible and what it says. You study it together three times most weeks. You've, you've persevered. And whilst you may not have faced the difficulties of the Ephesian church. With riots happening outside your door. Because of the number of people who've been converted. And then the idol makers have gone bust. Your church history hasn't been a breeze either. And yet you are still here. And Jesus tells us, he reminds us of the importance of standing firm. We shouldn't despise these things. Jesus commends them for it. But there's something much more important. And secondly, Jesus warns us of the danger of losing our first love. He warns us of the danger of losing our first love. One of my favourite simple pleasures is to bite into a cold, crunchy, juicy, gala apple, no other apple will do, uh, on a warm day. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that, but the opposite is terrible, isn't it? When you think you're about to bite into a luscious, crunchy, cold, juicy gala apple, but on the inside it's all soft and and it tastes a bit funny. It's a huge disappointment. It looks great. But once you're on the inside, it's very different. And the church in Ephesus was a bit like that. It was evangelical and sound. Yet in verse 4, we read that Jesus says some frightening words. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Isn't Jesus saying, I have this against you? That that vision that we saw of him in all of his glory and he is saying to this church i have this against you yes you may be maintaining the work ensuring that doctrine is right you may be persevering but you are no longer driven by a love for god and a love for one another that christianity was like a marriage where all the formal pieces were still there but the spark had gone imagine this a couple meets through a dating app their first date lasts for hours they have everything in common They love the same restaurants. They love the same sort of music. They can't get enough of each other. They talk on the phone. This is before text messages, by the way. But uh, they talk on the phone for, for hours. Neither one is bored. Within eight months, they're engaged. Eight months later, they're married. But eight years later, things have cooled and they don't talk so much. He's not as caring and tender as he used to be. They don't laugh together. The passion has cooled. They stare in silence with nothing to talk about. It's not that they're going off with anybody else but the spark has gone from the outside maybe you'd never guess but the magic has disappeared and that's tragic when it happens in a family but how much more tragic is it when it happens in the church of God yet this is what has happened in Ephesus outwardly it looked great they still had a zeal for Orthodoxy they showed up for their Bible studies they debated the dodgy preachers they stood against evil but they had abandoned their first love. No more were they intoxicated with God's love. And as a result, they were no longer returning that love to him or others. They were now content with the delight of their routine. The lampstand that was once flickering so brightly within a couple of generations is flickering. The love that used to make their heart throb, throbs no more. They'd abandon it. And Jesus has that against them. And the question for us this morning is, are we like that church in Ephesus? Are we doing all of the right things, but ultimately our hearts are cold? Are we like the Ephesians, busy, not missing a meeting? We're sound. We know our doctrine inside out. We're persevering. But on the inside we're just cold and we're just content with what we do. Everyone here might think that you're a model Christian. But in your heart love no longer beats like it once did. You're still coming to church. But you don't come here to grow in love for the Lord Jesus. You're here to listen to somebody preaching. You're passionate about that. But Jesus is no longer the attraction maybe. Preaching has become an end in itself. Well, you might be sat there this morning and thinking, why is Jesus, why is he making such a big deal of this? I mean, they could could be a lot worse than this, couldn't they? They were still doing all of the right things. That makes them better than all of the other churches who don't do those things right. Yeah, we find the answer, don't we, in our Lord's own teaching. He tells us in John 14 verse 21 that whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So if we love Christ, we will do his commandments. But what are those commandments? Well, Jesus tells us, doesn't he, in Mark 10, 29 and 30, that the most important commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. And the second most important is to love your neighbor as yourself. So if we follow every other commandment, but we miss those two, it's worthless. And if we think about it, every single sin that we commit comes from a failure to obey the most important commands from Jesus. And it also means that we're committing idolatry because we're moving him, removing him from his rightful place in our lives. So we're dethroning him. And there's a real terrible implication of that. It's not just that Jesus has got something against them. In verse 5 we read, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Remember what I said the the lampstand was? The lampstand is the local church. So Jesus is saying that he is coming to Ephesus. He's going to come to the church in Ephesus and he is going to close it down. He is saying if you carry on like this, I'm gone. This is staggering. Here is a church that is busy, that is theologically sound and it perseveres. But Jesus says, I will close you down. And it's important for churches like this and the one that I go to to understand that. Because the road to closed churches is not only paved with liberalism and the social gospel. Sometimes it can be paved with theological precision as well. That you can be a church that has so much preaching without having love-saturated hearts. And a church that is in danger of that is in, in danger. A church like that is in danger of having its lampstand taken away. Jesus will take his hand off the church and just leave us to go through the motions. What a sad picture that is. A group of people doing all of the things Christians do without the living Christ in their midst. So I ask you this morning, is Jesus your first love? Are you doing all of them, saying all of the right things, but your heart is as cold as ice? Maybe you love Jesus, but he is just one of many loves. Maybe you're here this morning and thinking, well, and you're, you're complacent. And you think, well, that could never happen here. Look across Wales. I'm sure you could take me across Clirich and show me the number of churches where the lampstand was ultimately taken away. I could certainly take you on a tour around Cardiff if you're ever in Cardiff and show you. Churches that a hundred years ago here to the Joshua brothers, full with these men preaching the gospel at them, yet now closed art galleries, converted into flats. So let's not mistake, let's not make the mistake of ignoring the warning of the church in Ephesus like they did. Because Jesus left them And the church in Ephesus is gone. Go to Ephesus today, there is no church. It is gone. So thirdly, Jesus shows us the hope of repentance. It would be pretty depressing if that was the end, wouldn't it? But Jesus shows us the hope of repentance. Imagine you're driving in a car in the heavy rain. I know that's hard to imagine the heavy rain in Wales. And the rain is so heavy, the bridge ahead has been washed away. And as you're driving along, you have no idea that it's been washed away. You're just looking forward to going home. And you see somebody in one of those bright yellow raincoats that everybody seems to have these days, uh, waving at you and shouting at you to stop. The bridge is gone. And at that point, you have a decision to make. Are you going to pay attention to the warning? Or are you going to ignore it and keep going on? Now, If you've been on a long journey, if you've been driving and you're on a long journey, there is a temptation in your head, isn't there? Of, oh, it won't be as bad as that. I'm sure it's not as bad as that. I just want to get home. I'm going to keep going. It's strong. You've been driving for three hours in dreadful conditions. You're tired. Or maybe that's the same for some of us. Here this morning, Jesus isn't our first love. We know that in our hearts. And we're thinking, well, maybe it won't be that bad. But here Jesus is telling us effectively not to drive off the cliff, but to turn and find joy and repentance. The family in the story in the car stopped and turned around, and will you do the same? And Jesus tells us in verse 5, doesn't he? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Christian he wants you to be honest with yourself how much has changed he wants you to remember do you remember when God first woke you up do you remember the joy when you went from being a slave to a son from an enemy to a friend do you remember when you'd pray all the time not just because it was the right thing to do but because you wanted to spend time with Jesus do you remember when you could sing all that thrills my soul is Jesus and you really meant it Do you remember when he was the reason that you did anything and everything? Do you remember when you were excited to be here on a Sunday morning? Knowing that he would meet with you and you would fall more in love with him as you spent time with him. As opposed to being here because that's what you do on Sundays. We remember. But he tells us doesn't he to repent in verse 5 as well. Repent. This isn't about doing better. Very good, aren't we, sometimes at trying harder? Doesn't work, does it, if you're like me? Trying harder generally doesn't work. It's not about feeling guilty. It's not about trying to make excuses. He is telling us to go to God and cry out for mercy. He's telling us to go and confess how cold we've become, and ask Him to set our heart aflame for Him. He's telling us to tell Him how we are, to tell Him how we've loved other things, to tell Him that He's not been our first love and to repent for not loving Him as He deserves. Because repentance should be a daily activity even for Christians, and then we ask his help to change but Jesus also tells us doesn't he to return to where you were when you grew cold in verse five he tells you to do the works you did at first I love this Jesus isn't telling us to make up the shortfall that we had to make I mean that haven't been done he calls us back to where we were he calls us to action. He calls you to return to his grace. He calls you to those things that make your heart sing for Jesus. Whatever that is, he asks you and commands you this morning to prioritize it. But returning can be scary, can't it? Returning can be scary. When you know you've wronged somebody, That first conversation is horrible, isn't it? Well, you know, you've got to, you've got to deal with this. But you can feel it and even maybe the second and the third as the, as the relationship isn't there. How do you know you're going to be accepted? Think of the parable of the prodigal son. This, this son had disgraced his father. He'd knowingly, he'd willingly walked away. He'd taken all of his inheritance and said, I, I wish you would. He basically said to his father, I wish you were dead. Take my inheritance. I'm going to do, go and do what I want. Eventually. Things don't go as he planned and he ends up in a pigsty living amongst the pigs and while he's there he comes to his senses. He remembers what things were like in his father's house and he repents. And remember what he says? Some of you will will know this. He's worried isn't he? How's my father going to, how's my father going to respond? I know. I'll just tell him I want to be a slave. I just want to be a servant because he was worried. So he does this U-turn. He returns to his father's house. And how does his father behave? Does he make him a servant? He's not there with a big stick. His father sees him in the distance, and he's so excited to see him, he comes running to welcome his child home. You see, there are really serious consequences to continuing to abandon your first love. But let me be very clear this morning that when you return, you will find grace. You will find grace. You see, however cold you may be this morning, the door has not been locked. The story is not over. You can have with Christ again what you once had. And what a promise for those who do that in verse 7. There Jesus promises that if we overcome, we will be able to eat the tree of life in in the paradise of God. Now to conquer in the biblical sense is to overcome the world by believing in Jesus Christ. To conquer is to keep faith in the gospel. And Jesus is the only one who grants access to the tree of life. And we're picking up language here from Genesis. So you can look at Genesis two later if you want to, uh, where we find the tree of life in paradise. The tree of life is first mentioned in Genesis two, verse nine, as one of many trees that are given to Adam and Eve for food. But after after the fall, it is off limits. There is no way to it. Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 says that God drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. So if the tree of life, the access has been barred, how do we get to eat of this tree of life in the paradise of God? Well there's only one way. And that is through believing in another tree. The tree of Calvary. Jesus brought life through a cursed tree so that you and I would be granted the privilege of eating from the tree of life. He faced and was put on the tree of death so that we can enjoy the tree of life. The tree of Christ is the only way to the tree of life. And in Revelation 22 verse 14 we read that blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates not only will we eat it, we will have a right to it because our robes will have been washed in his blood. Notice that the cherubim and the flaming swords have gone. We can just enter through the gates. Nobody's going to stop us. And they point, don't they, to this future blessedness that has been promised for God's people. And that's what Revelation 22 is telling us, isn't it? That through the Lord Jesus, we're going to be brought to circumstances more blessed than we can ever imagine. It's so great, it's inexpressible, and it's just described, isn't it, as paradise. This is the culmination of the Bible story. Where Jesus accomplishes God's original purposes for creation, reverses Adam's curse, fully fulfills God's promises, and ultimately provides his people somewhere to dwell with him for eternity. So as we finish this morning, the question I want to ask you is, will you hear what the Spirit is saying this morning? Will you listen to him? Because the stakes could not be higher. But there is hope. There is hope. And I urge you, come back to Jesus, who stands with arms wide open, to receive you. Because what is waiting for those who overcome is beyond our wildest ima- imaginations. And if you're not a Christian here and you've come along, the same can be true of you. You can have this hope. You too can one day be in paradise for all of the mess of this life. That can be true of you if you put your trust in Jesus. Let's re-answer the question that we asked at the start. What does a church that is in danger of closing down look like? Well, not only is it a church that has stopped preaching the truth. Not only is it a church that is liberal and socially focused rather than around the gospel. But it is a church that has abandoned its first love. And in that sense, sound doctrine, the busy church program and our perseverance are irrelevant. And that is the message and the warning of this letter to us all this morning. If your love for Christ has gone cold, go back to him. Don't put it off. Return to him. He will welcome you with open arms. Don't be like the Ephesian church who didn't listen to this warning and paid the price. Run to Christ and he will receive you.